the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I know it might seem a little bit off because Monday was a holiday. We had a snow day and, you know, lots of things that happened. But today is Wednesday and we're glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Thanks, Dan. Today we'll share a conversation with Dudley Rutherford. His latest book is Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. I hope there is an irresistible call. We'll talk about that with him in the second half of this hour. And then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jonathan Butcher. He's the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. He makes the argument that unions are keeping students and teachers out of classrooms. So what can lawmakers do about it? That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. We'll also talk with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life. They're a Right to Life conference is coming up, but as has been the case for many months now, there are going to need to be some changes. We're going to talk about them and uh, the tremendous opportunity you have to attend. And we'll tell you that uh, those important details a bit later in the program. Well, as of early this morning, PGE reported 149,000 698 customers without power, and Pacific Power reported 6,659 customers without power. That gives you some perspective that this snowstorm and its effects are not over. Now, much of the snow and the ice from last weekend's winter storm has melted. That's great news. Hundreds of thousands of Oregonians are still without power. They're without heat, internet, and other services. Now, PGE tweeted that uh, its system experienced catastrophic destruction due to the storm. Uh, They previously warned it would take days for some people to get their power back, and they certainly have held true to their word. Our friends, our family are experiencing these outages as well. We know exactly what you're going through. That's what PGE spokesman Steve Corson said on Monday. We know the frustration, and we're working as fast as uh, and as hard as we can to get that power restored. Now, while being stuck in your home without power is... uh, very challenging situation. Being at the top of a telephone pole or trying to cut trees up that have fallen across a line or trying to re um, hang these lines, that's got to be tough. They're outside in it, in the middle of it. So these uh, these workers, Portland General Electric and uh, others, uh, they're doing the best they can. They say it has uh, restored power for more than 320,000 customers. And as of 6 a.m. on Wednesday, this morning, PGE reported 149,698 without power still. And Pacific Power, as I mentioned, 6,600. Well, both utility companies said crews were working around the clock with backup called in from as far away as Nevada and Montana. Uh, PGE said more than 3,000 people are working to restore power for its customers. The issue, Corson says, was that trees in several locations had come crashing onto PGE equipment, damaging power lines, transmission transmission lines, and even substations. So there's a lot to be done. More than 8,400 PGE power lines have been brought down by ice and tree limbs. Uh, Portland Fire and Rescue urged people to only call 911 
when down power lines are arcing that sparking or have caused some immediate danger to people or pets. Otherwise, they advise people to report downed power lines to PGE. People should also stay far away from those lines, especially in the wet conditions that we're in. Meanwhile, Oregon Governor Kate Brown on Saturday declared a state of emergency due to the severe weather and power outages. The state of emergency I declared on Saturday will ensure that all necessary state resources are available on the ground to help Oregonians impacted by this winter storm. It's been it's been rough. Four people in Clackamas County have died from carbon monoxide poisoning during the winter storm trying to stay warm. The Clackamas County Sheriff's Office said in addition to the deaths, first responders have reported several other close calls. Deputies report six adults in Gladstone got carbon monoxide poisoning after using a generator in an enclosed area. Now, the sheriff's office says it's important that people don't use generators inside their homes because of carbon monoxide danger. Deputies also said people shouldn't use alternative heating sources, including barbecues, camp stoves, cooktops inside their home. Now, some of us are thinking, well, who would do that? You get cold enough, long enough, you're going to try anything. So please um, be careful. Uh, They also say for those without power, PG offers some tips, and I'll share them with you. Use caution with alternative light and heating sources. Lock in-home heat by uh, uh, tacking blankets over windows and doorways to keep the cold out and putting rolled towels at the bottom of doors to keep drafts out. Save body heat by wearing loose layers of clothing to trap body heat, wearing a hat even when sleeping. Moving periodically to generate body heat using blankets and hot water bottles is feasible. Uh, If you can safely do so, consider staying with a friend or family member who has power. If you're concerned for yourself, a family member or a neighbor, consider finding another location. And if you need emergency shelter or have other needs related to the cold weather, you can call 211 for customers uh, whose power is out. You can also call PGE. Now, these may seem like um, no-brainers practical things one would do. But if you're in the middle of it, you might not be thinking as uh, clearly and carefully as you otherwise might. So uh, the sixth day of power outages in the city of Portland continues. Meanwhile, roughly a dozen Portland police officers, they faced off with a small group at a Northeast Portland Fred Meyer yesterday after people tried to take food that had been thrown away into the dumpsters back to their homes. Now, workers at the Hollywood West, um, Fred Meyer, they threw away thousands of perishable items because the store, like many others, uh, had lost power in an outage brought on by the region's winter storm. So stuff was uh, was rotting, if you will. Images on social media showed mountains of packaged meat, cheese, juice, other whole turkeys, racks of ribs that had to be tossed into two large dumpsters near the store. Well, a few people gathered at about two 30 in the afternoon at the store in hopes of salvaging that food. Now, in the 21st century, we don't allow that sort of thing to happen, even though it seems perfectly practical that food that is not yet rotted but is on its way to rotting should be made available to those who have no food or need it. But within a few hours, people seeking food from the dumpster, they started to report police officers showing up to guard the dumpsters and prevent people from taking the items. Now, in the interest of the store, who could be held liable for uh, items that were taken and perhaps made someone ill or took ended their life, uh, you know, their competing interests here. Morgan McNiff, who's a, a resident of the neighborhood, said employees were guarding the dumpsters when they showed up to get some of the discarded food. He started to film the employees, reported staff members, threatened to call the police on them for doing so. And again, 
sadly, there are competing interests and the store trying to protect itself. The store manager called police shortly thereafter, began live streaming the interaction on Instagram. Mr. McNiff did. After that, other people started showing up and asking them, why are you guys guarding a dumpster? Well, McNiff said about 15 people eventually gathered in an attempt to collect the food. At that point, he said a dozen officers did arrive to protect the rotting goods. I say rotting because that's why they were thrown out. They weren't able to refrigerate them so that they were suitable for consumption and yet hadn't quite rotted and could have been consumed. So it's just a sad no-win situation. Neither Portland police nor the store's spokesman responded to requests for comment. Uh, An environmental biologist and data scientist who arrived to document the presence of the police said officers showed up and threatened those on hand with arrest, at which point the crowd moved across the street. Um, They took Uh, their press badges went closer to take photos and apparently a clash between the two, which is what some people are simply looking for. How can we provoke and undermine the reputation of police who have been called to protect what belongs to the store hadn't yet been purchased and could be harmful to their customers. So just a a run in um, that could have been avoided, I suppose, uh, but people who are presumably hungry and not just trying to create a scenario in which they can, Uh, trash the police and the store that's getting rid of food that they can't safely sell to their customers any longer clashing uh, in a parking lot at a Fred Myers. Just a sad, sad situation. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Dudley Rutherford, author of Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. I hope you will, um, will join us for that. And in the second hour, Jonathan Butcher will join us to talk about how unions are keeping students and teachers out of the classroom and what can, if anything, be done about it. We'll also talk with Lois Anderson. She was on the program, I think, last week. She's the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We talked briefly about uh, the Oregon Right to Life conference that's coming up, but given circumstances, there needs to be a pivot. We're going to explain the new normal for that conference that's coming up in early March. So she'll be joining me in the next hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, taking a look at some of the day's headlines. President Biden faced CNN's, well, pretty much softball town hall questions. There was no question on uh, Governor Cuomo or T.J. Ducklow scandals. CNN didn't exactly challenge President Biden during the Tuesday night town hall in Milwaukee, according to uncomfortable subjects, or rather avoiding uncomfortable subjects for the administration or other Democrats who were present. Not surprising, but disappointing. Much of the program was focused on the president's handling of the coronavirus pandemic going forward. CNN anchor Anderson Cooper rather grilled the president on whether he agreed with the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that Senate Republicans who voted to acquit former President Trump in his impeachment trial were cowards and whether he would allow his Department of Justice to investigate his predecessor. Meanwhile, going unmentioned was the scandal surrounding New York Governor Andrew Cuomo Uh, His administration's withholding of data on nursing home deaths during the early months of the pandemic is the story. Cuomo, who Biden repeatedly praised during the 2020 campaign cycle, is facing bipartisan backlash after one of the top aides revealed the Democrat governor's administration had hidden data from state lawmakers out of fear of condemning figures who uh, uh, the condemning figures rather would be used against them in a possible federal probe. So 
out of their own interest rather than the interests of the people. Also ignored during the televised event was the dramatic resignation of White House Deputy Press Secretary T.J. Ducklow, who was forced to resign on Sunday after it was revealed he berated a political reporter with sexist language and threatened to, in quotes, destroy her for pursuing a story about his blossoming relationship with an Axios reporter. None to see here, folks, according to CNN. In other developments, Sean Hannity slammed CNN's hard-hitting coverage, in quotes, describing the president as an early-to-bed type. Tucker Carlson called the fawning coverage of the mainstream media a disgusting, corrupting love affair with Joe Biden. Meanwhile, President Biden on Tuesday night distanced himself from previous comments by White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki that the administration's goal for its first 100 days was to have more than 50 percent of schools open at least one day per week, which is already the case. Well, that goal was criticized as unambitious, as it had essentially already been met by school districts partially opening on their own before Biden's time in office. There was also speculation that the White House was trying to avoid upsetting teachers unions. We'll talk more about that later, which are a major force in the Democrat Party and have in many cases strongly opposed school reopening, despite the CDC insisting that's in the best interest. But Biden at a CNN town hall on Tuesday night said that Psaki was not correct in saying uh, that having uh, half of the schools open one day per week, essentially getting schools 10 percent open overall, is the White House's goal for the end of the first 100 days. However, he failed to clarify what the White House goal is, if that is not uh, the case. Meanwhile, a city public school principal is asking uh, parents, Caucasian parents, on their um, uh, to reflect on their own to reflect on their whiteness, passing out literature that extols white traitors who dismantle institutions, education officials confirmed uh, to The Post on Tuesday. Well, the woke offensive at the Eastside Community School in Manhattan features a ranking list titled The Eight White Identities. Now, for those of you who are unaware, I'm African-American, so I, I find this unconscionable. Um, anyway, the eight white identities, which range from white supremacists to white abolitionists, the curriculum written by Varner Hess. Now, they don't they don't want to teach your kids in the classroom, but they want to now teach parents in their homes. Uh, the curriculum written by Varner Hess, an associate professor of African-American studies at Northwestern University in Illinois, claims there is a regime of whiteness and there are actions oriented white identities. People who identify with whiteness are one of these. So if you, you know, you don't identify with whiteness, you're either white or you're not. So this notion that you choose to identify as white and therefore you fall into one of these white identities, none of which um, is flattering. Uh, it's about time we build the ethnography of whiteness since white people have been the ones writing about and governing others. Uh, in between the two extreme identities of supremacist and abolitionist are such categories as white voyeurism, defined as wouldn't challenge a white supremacist, desires non-whiteness because it's interesting, and white privilege or sympathetic to a set of issues but only privately, uh, won't speak or act in solidarity publicly because benefiting though through whiteness uh, in public uh, is uh, in their best interest. Well, it goes on from there. Uh, so never fear, despite the fact that they're not interested in teaching your children in the classroom in New York, they're interested in teaching parents in their own homes about what's wrong with them just because they've drawn a breath as a, a white person and think you ought to be studying, thinks parents there ought to be studying what's wrong with them. I find that unacceptable. Let's address concrete problems, real issues, that are impacting society. Let's not point the finger at every individual white person in this New York City uh, school district 
to suggest that you are inherently racist on this um, this scale, and therefore you need to check yourself. It applies to everybody. But that's the same stereotyping that frustrated and continues to frustrate black people that were all put into one category and judged singularly. Now this, you have kind of an arc, so maybe that's a privilege in and of itself, but that's what they're asking parents to do in New York City. But I digress. President Biden has separated himself from fellow Democrats' call to erase $50,000 in student loan debt. He's looking more like 10000 And the Biden administration is urging the Department of Homeland Security officials to stop using the phrase illegal alien in favor of a more inclusive term or inclusive language. What that might be? We'll keep our ears to the ground. President Trump trashed Mitch McConnell in a searing new statement. Well, the former president released a scathing statement on Tuesday afternoon, and he was targeting Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Trump, who once supported the Kentucky Republican, rebuked him using terms harsher than those of most Democrats, while referring to Mr. McConnell as a dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. The former president said the GOP would never again be respected or strong with McConnell at its helm. Ouch. McConnell has said Trump bears responsibility for the January 6th Capitol riot and suggested he voted not to convict Trump on an impeachment count of inciting the riot only because he is no longer president. Trump, in his statement, said the uh, Democrats and Senator Major, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer play McConnell like a fiddle and blamed him for the GOP's Senate losses in Georgia for not offering big enough stimulus checks. In other developments, Senator Senator Lindsey Graham has weighed in on the McConnell-Trump feud, saying he's more worried about 2022 than ever, and he probably should be. Meantime, McConnell says he was defending the Constitution, not the president, with the impeachment acquittal vote. Well, critics are saying sanctimonious McConnell and other Republican lawmakers are way out of touch with the GOP base, and Mitch McConnell is threatening to oppose Trump-backed Senate candidates if they're not electable. Well, President Biden says the White House residence was unseen to him until he moved in. Was he snubbed by Obama? Well, the president served in the U.S. Senate for more than 30 years and then served eight years as Barack Obama's vice president. But until he moved in last month, he said Tuesday night he'd never been inside the presidential residence area of the White House. Now, that may be typical. I don't know. But the president made the disclosure during a town hall event in Milwaukee hosted by CNN's Anderson Cooper. I had been in the Oval Office 100 times as vice president, more than that, every morning for the initial meeting, but I had never been up in the residence. The disclosure appeared to support previous reports that perhaps Biden and Obama weren't always the close friends that they often portrayed themselves to be in public. Now, imagine that two politicians who are the best of buddies in public, but not so much in private. This this is quite a revelation. Not well, Biden and Cuomo didn't discuss covid nursing home scandal when he was uh, when they were together, according to White House Press Secretary Saki, the big elephant in the room, if you will, among the donkeys. Saki also said Biden will speak with Netanyahu soon after three weeks without a call. Israel is an important ally, she said. But this is the longest a sitting U.S. president has ever gone. That's a signal. A fraction of Biden's $128 billion education relief plan would go towards schools in 2021, according to the Congressional Budget Office. And the White House plans to freeze out Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi prince who is close to the Trump White House. Iran, by the way, is quite pleased. We need to take a break. Uh, When we come back, we'll hear from Dudley Rutherford, author of Compel, the Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. And I hope we all sense that irresistible opportunity, that gift to share our faith, because at the other end of that conversation, the other end of that effort, 
there is eternal life for those who receive it. So that's coming up in the next segment. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as the world becomes more hostile toward things of God, toward the gospel, uh, many Christians are resisting telling others about the best thing that ever happened to them. And that seems a bit peculiar, does it not? Well, in his new book, Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith, published by Worthy, my next guest, Pastor Dudley Rutherford, he shares his earnest desire for each and every believer to be equipped and bold in sharing their faith. And he provides practical methods and application to effectively articulate the message of the gospel. He offers overwhelming motivation to take up the call of evangelism and takes the mystery out of how to do it, to share one's faith in the postmodern world. Well, um, he's going to encourage you to pause for a moment and uh, silence the many distractions that compete for your time and attention. You'll hear the faint whisper, the gentle yet irresistible call in your spirit uh, to speak the truth in love. Well, Pastor Dudley Rutherford is the senior pastor of Shepherd Church, a 10,000 member congregation. And through the Lift Up Jesus television ministry, his sermons are broadcast on TV and radio nationwide. He's the founder of DreamOfDestiny.org, a ministry designed to foster ethnic diversity within the Christian church. He's the author of Walls Fall Down, God Has an App for That, Unleashed, Romancing Royalty, and Proverbs in a Haystack. He has had uh, uh, distinction in speaking for several professional sports teams and has been featured chaplain, or chapel rather, speaker for the World Series. We're delighted to have him with us today to talk about his latest book, simply titled Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. Thank you so much for joining us, Pastor. Georgine, thank you so much. I'm so excited to spend a few moments with you and your listeners. Well, I think for many of us who are insecure about sharing our faith, we're, we're afraid of being rejected. The word compelled doesn't really resonate when we're talking about evangelism. Why do you think that's the case? Well, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, you know, we're, we're always afraid, I think, of rejection. There's always that feeling, or if I share my faith, or if I invite someone to church, or can I talk to you about Jesus, that we're going to be rejected. And so that's a very legit fear. We also have a fear where we're uh, we're afraid that we won't have the right words to speak. They won't come out of our mouth. We're afraid we might get asked the question that we don't have the answer for. And then, of course, we're just distracted by the daily mundane task of life that we fail to take the time. And so the the most important thing we've been called to do, which is to talk to people, to share our faith, the great commandment to go in the whole world and uh, lift up Jesus and, and uh, make disciples, that gets shoved way back on the back burner for all of those reasons. And I uh, put this book together just to help people overcome some of those fears and to motivate people to move beyond the distractions of life and to seriously look at people in light of eternity that is a very, very, very long time, and we're on this earth for a very, very short period of time, and to use our time wisely in trying to communicate the gospel with as many people as we possibly can as long as God gives us time here on this earth. Absolutely. And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that there will be those who reject the message. We see that throughout Scripture. Jesus warned us, we're going to see some trouble. But as uh, as your book points out, we're talking about the best thing that ever happened to us. And to be unwilling to share that uh, says a little bit about our, our concern in regard for others. Um, 
which I think should be concerning. Yeah, you know, I, it's like if someone invented the cure for cancer. I mean, if you had the cure, you had it in a bottle, and you discovered it, and you uh, used it on yourself, and you were cured, and you failed to share that that antidote with the millions of people around the world that are suffering for, from cancer, what what kind of a person would you be to take that for yourself and not be willing to share it? And our what we've experienced is the love of Christ, His grace, His mercy. Our sins have been forgiven. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit within mm-hmm. us. We have the assurance of everlasting life. We go through life knowing that God is with us and that when we die, we get to go to heaven. We've experienced His grace. We've, we've tasted it. And for us to look at the world and to know that most people do not know Jesus Christ and to not share it with them, what what is wrong with us that we would not, wouldn't be the first thing that we'd say to people when we cross paths with people? And I just think that, uh, again, that this book is going to help you to be more, I don't know, more sensitive to those around you and the spiritual condition in people's lives instead of just the, what's right in front of you and the daily activities that we're all involved with. You mentioned a moment ago the role of the Holy Spirit, and I think sometimes we forget that it's not all on our shoulders, that we have to be persuasive enough, that our words are going to have to be calculated enough, but that there's a role that's being played by God himself in the hearts of those who are hearing our words. Yes, you know, God, uh, God's Holy Spirit does a lot of things uh, in our life, and one of those things is that he positions us and he will cross our path with the path of someone who needs to hear the gospel. And we'll either plant a seed or we're going to water a seed that's already been planted. But make no mistake about it, that, that every day we have what's called divine opportunities, that God positions us, and he positions a lost person. Much as the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, the evangelist in the book of Acts, he, he sent Philip to go talk to that man specifically, the Ethiopian eunuch, and he was an important treasure official from Ethiopia. Uh, He was uh, kind of in a high position. I'm sure he was an influencer of many people, and God specifically aligned Philip to go talk to that Ethiopian man, and I believe that God's Holy Spirit does that every single day. And not only will he position us he will he will empower us once we engage i i just know that god's going to give you the right words and the right the right response to questions that people may ask uh, he will give you what the bible calls an instructed tongue what i call an instructed tongue and uh, i i think that we have to be aware and when we wake up every day we need to pray just this little prayer and we just say lord today I don't I don't know what I'm doing, but would you please cross my path with someone that I can share the gospel with? Would you open up a door of opportunity, a window of opportunity? And if we'll if we'll pray that prayer every day, God give me eyes to see what you see spiritually in people's lives and let me be a vehicle and a vessel and just use me. I am convinced that God will answer that prayer. He will set you in front of someone. You'll cross paths with someone, and you'll sense it in your in your spirit. Uh, God will lead you to them. Uh, you know, I also think, uh, you know, the 
the uh, the Philippian jailer, he's there, and the earthquake happened, and the disciples were there and shared the gospel with them. Even in the midst of a jail cell, in the midst of an earthquake, God was still lining people up so that folks could be saved. Yeah. And I think God will do that today in our life as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in your book, Compelled, you write, uh, you mentioned the road to Damascus and Paul's conversion. What do you find most compelling about that story as a takeaway for Christians today? Oh, I, that's an easy question to answer. <laughs> and that is that Paul would, would have been the last person. His name was Saul, of course, at the time, but he would have been the last person on this planet that you would think would ever become a Christian. He was actually on his way to persecute the church. And had you known him, and I would have been guilty of this as well, I would have said, that's one guy that will never give his life to Jesus Christ. And yet that's exactly who God reached and who God saved. And that man that we thought would never be used or could ever become a Christian, God used him to become perhaps the greatest church builder, missionary the world has ever seen. And so what that does for me on a regular basis is whenever I meet people and I meet them and you meet them where you think, well, that guy, there's no need for me to share the Christ with him because he's never going to get saved. He's, he's too locked into this world. God could never reach someone like that. You might even have a relative like that, but you think God's never going to reach my, my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister. Listen, there is no one beyond the reach of God. That's what I learned from Saul getting saved yes. on the road to Damascus, uh, that we can never give up on anyone being saved and to realize that everyone, anyone can be saved. But we've got to be faithful to share the gospel and let God do his thing. Amen. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book titled Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. And if you don't feel compelled, this is a great book to equip you and to remind us all of what a treasure we possess. And we need to share that with others. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Dudley Rutherford. He is the senior pastor of Shepherd Church. It's a 10,000-member congregation. And uh, we're talking about his latest book, Compel, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. Your first chapter uh, is titled A Once-in-a-Lifetime Opportunity, and you share an experience uh, from uh, Dodger Stadium that really is a great object lesson of what we may miss if we... Uh, if we don't seize the opportunities that God gives us. Yes, I can hear you. I didn't know what your question was, though. I'm sorry. Okay, that's fine. Um, I was just saying that um, the first chapter in your book is titled A Once in a Lifetime Opportunity, and you share a story um, out of Dodger Stadium that really is a great object lesson of what we can miss if we don't seize the opportunities that God gives us. Well, yes, the very first chapter, and uh, I was at a Dodger baseball game. You know, there's 40,000, 50,000 people, and there's a, a boy sitting next to me who's about 12 years of age. He could have been 13 or 14, but he was totally blind. Uh, his eyes were kind of rolled up in his head. He, I mean, you, he couldn't he, – he was just blind. He was, you could tell he was a blind person. And he's sitting there. Uh, his mom is sitting next to him. And it's the greatest picture of faith that I have ever seen in my life. This little boy is sitting there in Dodger Stadium, blind as can be, but he has a baseball glove. He's wearing a baseball glove as though he was going to catch a foul ball. 
And uh, in the middle of that game, there was a foul ball that came in our area. I thought it was coming right to me. And I share in the book, I don't know if it was the spin of the ball or the Holy Spirit of God or the breeze coming off the Pacific Ocean, that ball began to curve towards that little boy. And I never thought uh, that ball was going to land in his glove, but I did think it was going to hit him in his head and kill him. That's what I thought. And that ball landed behind him, and it scooted. As soon as it hit, I mean, it, it missed his head by a couple of inches. And it scooted down about eight, nine, ten chairs. And some lady was over there with her boyfriend, and she wasn't really even paying attention to the game. She was eating popcorn, and she looked down, and right in front of her feet was a baseball. And she, she picked it up, and she stood up. And there were some guys that were on the ground behind this boy, kind of fighting for the ball. And I, I said, hey, 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 guys, guys, the ball is over there. And they all look up, and down there about eight, nine, ten chairs is this woman standing up with this baseball. So I was sitting with a buddy of mine. Uh, he's a preacher as well. Uh, his name was Ron Carter. And we were like long, long, long-time friends. I said, Ron, I want to go ask that lady if she'll give me that baseball to give to that blind kid. He's been sitting here the whole game in faith thinking he's going to catch a foul ball. And Ron, my buddy, said, "Let." he kept saying, let Dudley, I want to do it. The Lord is impressed upon me to go over there. And I said, well, okay. Finally, I agreed to that. We argued about who was going to go ask. And then I said, and I reached in my pocket, and I gave him $20. I said, if she says no, here's 20 You give her 20 Offer her 40 bucks and see if, see if she'll give you that baseball. So I go up to get a Coke, and he goes over to ask this lady. I come back. And he's like shaking his head. He's all upset, discouraged. I go, what happened? And he said, well, I went over there and I said, lady, do you see that kid? Same row. He goes, you see that kid there? He's, he's blind. He's been sitting there the whole game. Would you mind giving me that baseball and let me go give it to that boy? First of all, she said no. Then he goes, I offered her $40 and she started to give me the baseball. And at the last second, her boyfriend kind of, kind of, pulled the baseball back and said no. And then he said these words. He said, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to a Dodger game and catch a foul ball. We're not, giving it, we're not giving this baseball to the blind kid. So when Ron told me that, and I know I'm a preacher, I know I'm a Christian, but I did not have Christian thoughts when he, when he told me this story. And I, because I wanted to go say to the lady, lady, this is not a, a once in a lifetime opportunity is not going to a, a baseball game. And you're sitting over there, not even paying attention. And a foul ball hits over here and rolls over into your lap. That is not a once in a lifetime opportunity. What a once in a lifetime opportunity is going to a Dodger game and a foul ball comes hits 10 chairs over and rolls over to your lap and you pick it up and you're holding this baseball and you look over and you see a kid who's been blind his whole life, who's been sitting there, never seen a baseball game, never seen a baseball, never will see a baseball. And you have a baseball and you run over there and you stick that baseball in that blind kid's glove and you go, here you go, kid. I said, that is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And then I relate that story to that is who we are. Many of us were just sitting over here doing absolutely nothing and not paying attention. And God, in his divine mercy and grace, sent his son, Jesus. We were not deserving. We didn't, in no way, shape, or form did we deserve this. 
But Christ goes to the cross, and he dies in our place, and he places in our hands salvation. And what we do many times is we hold on to it, and we don't tell anybody. We don't witness. We don't share. There's nothing that's motivating us to share. And all around us, if you would just look, once you're saved, once you have this great gift, if you just look around, people all around us are spiritually blind. There are people who are lost. There are people who are broken. There are people who are empty. There are people who are searching for what, you, what God just placed in your hand. And selfishly, many times, we just hold it to ourselves. When part of the reason why God saved us is that we would be a conduit to reach others in, in strategic ways. And so that's why I tell that story. It's the first chapter of the book. It, it, again, it's, it's called Compelled. I just think there are many things that should compel us. Uh, you know, Paul said the love of Christ is what compels me mm-hmm. to share the gospel. And I just think that we should do a better job of understanding that God has graced us and all around us are people who need that same grace. And that is what's most important in this life, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. In fact, you write about how important it is to do um, God's work above even our secular work, which dominates most of our thinking and our time and energy. Yeah, you know, um, I don't, I, I think, Georgine, you know that not everyone's called to be a minister, not everyone's called to talk on the radio to serve in a church as far as in a leadership position. But we, we've all been called to evangelize. Uh, that is not something that just the, uh, the ordained clergy are supposed to be doing. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that every believer is to be letting your light shine. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, it was for, to go make disciples and baptize them, and then to teach them, those disciples, to go and continue out uh, this, this Great Commission. And so... It's, uh, sometimes people are torn that they say, hey, I'm in a secular job. I can't, I can't witness the way you do. You're a pastor. You can stand up and preach in front of you know, thousands of people. But I think God has called you to work where you're working. God has called you to be in the school that you're in. God has called you to be in that, work, that workforce because he needs you to be his hands and his feet. He's called you to be a missionary in that school or at that place of employment. And I think that that people would have a greater sense of accomplishment and a, greatest, a greater sense of purpose if they realize that God has called me to work where I work. Yes, I go and I do my, my 8 to 5 or my 9 to 5 job, but to realize that your job there, beyond the secular job of providing for your family, that God has placed people in your sphere of influence that you can share Christ with or give them a Bible or tell them you're praying for them or ask them, is there something I can pray? You can invite them to your church. You can, again, send get a copy of the message that you heard last Sunday. You can say, hey, you should listen to this Georgine lady on the radio. She's really, really good. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of ways that you can plant seeds in people's life, but the secular job is an important job because I don't think God wants to pull us all out of where we work. I think he wants us working where we work. And sometimes I think that people expect me as a preacher to share the gospel because they said, that's your job. But when they hear it from a fellow employee or a coworker, I think oftentimes it has a greater impact in their life because they think this is real. I know this person. I've seen the change in this person. 
this person does act like different than everyone else around this place. And what are those changes in your, what, what, why are you different than everybody else? I think there's a compelling reason to stay where you are and to work at that job and to realize that God has called you to be there and to be his voice and to be his hands and to be his feet. Absolutely. And in fact, I recall in Scripture, it says something about that uh, you equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, that the pastor isn't going to be in your office. He's not going to be at the places that you (laughs) tend to frequent. That's what you're equipping us to do. And your book really provides us with some practical ways to do that and to remind us why we should feel compelled. We are compelled to do that because of the love of Christ. Again, the book is titled Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. It includes discussion questions after each chapter that can help you make it practical. And I believe as uh, Pastor Pastor Rutherford said, if we begin to ask God for opportunities, he is just waiting to open doors for us and help us to see and hear as he does so that we can be effective in sharing our faith. Pastor, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. It was a joy and a privilege and an honor. I'll be praying for you and all those who are listening that we'll get out there and share our faith as often as we can. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Don- Jonathan Butcher, the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundations. We're going to talk about the um, unions keeping students and teachers out of the classroom and what lawmakers can do about it, if anything. We'll also talk with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. You know, their conference is coming up in early March. Well, as has been the case here for months there have been some changes. We want to let you know what they are and how you can participate in that event in a safely distanced manner. I'm so looking forward to not having to safely distance at some point in the future, hopefully in my lifetime. We'll see what happens. Well, Mike Gonzalez points out that it didn't start on January 6th, and he offers a brief history of terrorist violence at the Capitol. You can read the whole article at the Daily Signal, but he points out that the nauseating invasion of the Capitol on the 6th of January wasn't the only time the building has been attacked. There were three previous acts of aggression, all perpetrated by the other side of the aisle. So this isn't as unprecedented as we have been hearing, nor does that fact justify what happened on January 6th or exonerate anyone who was involved or incited the events. He writes out, uh, writes rather that Democratic presidents have commuted the sentences of most of the individuals arrested and charged in relation to those attacks. Uh, The attacks were in 1954. There was a shooting of a member of the House of Representatives by terrorists supporting the cause of Puerto Rican separation from the U.S. In 1971, a bombing by the domestic terrorist group, the Weather Underground, and another one 12 years later by a group of weathermen who identified themselves as the Armed Resistance Unit. Well, the March 1954 shooting was in many ways the most dastardly. Three men and a woman, Rafael Cancel Miranda, Irving Flores Rodriguez, Andreas Figueroa Cordora and Lolita Lebron, they enter the House of Representatives Visitors Gallery, which hangs over the floor of the House, and proceeded to observe lawmakers debate the subject of migrant workers from Mexico. Well, at one point, the four got up. Lebron shouted, Viva Puerto Rico Libre, long live free Puerto Rico, and unfurled a Puerto Rican flag. All four took out uh, semi-automatic pistols they were carrying and proceeded to spray with bullets the defenseless members of Congress below. The four, all in their 20s, didn't succeed in killing any of the congressmen or women, but did wound five. They were quickly arrested. Well, 23 years later, President Jimmy Carter commuted the sentences of the four, uh, one who had cancer, and two years after that, he commuted the sentences of the other three. 
the cancer uh, patient, Figueroa Cordoro, he died in 1979, but the other three lived long enough uh, long lives of leftist activism. Cancel Miranda died last March, a hero to many who favor independence for Puerto Rico, according to the New York Times obituary written for her. Carter's Secretary of State Cyrus Vance said the release would be a significant humanitarian gesture and would be viewed as such by much of the international community. President Carter later told the Congressional Hispanic Caucus that he had released them for humane reasons. Over 25 years was long enough, he said. Well, the four were unrepentant, however. At least two of the terrorists said that they would not rule out using violent means again, which was probably the reason then-Puerto Rican Governor Carlos Romero uh, Bacello sent Carter a strong and forceful letter against releasing unrepentant terrorists and warning of dangerous repercussions, a letter that Carter ignored. Well, for the record, Puerto Rico, in any time they uh, want, can end the relationship they have uh, had with the United States since the 1898 Spanish-American War. So that's a possibility. Well, the island was held no fewer than six referendums on the status. In the most recent one in 2020, Puerto Ricans were offered a yes or no choice on the question, should Puerto Rico be admitted immediately to the union as a state? A majority, 52.52% said yes. Uh, we can assume that the majority of the 47.48 who voted no would want to retain the island's current status as a 2012 uh, referendum, less than 5 point, uh, Rather, 5.5 voted for independence. No arrests were made, no were charges filed in connection with the 1971 bombing of the Capitol by the Weather Underground. There were, therefore, no sentences to commute. The bombing did cause $350,000 in damage. According to author Byron Burrow, the man known as the bomb guru of the terrorist group, um, years later it was said that the, he believes he may have built the device the weathermen said that they were uh, protesting the invasion of Laos by U.S.-supported South Vietnam. Well, the Weather Underground was formed in 1969 by a handful of wealthier middle-class white students, including Bill Ayers, who, after emerging from hiding, transformed into a professor in Chicago and went on to become Barack Obama's political mentor there. I guess you can go home again. Coming out of the uh, more peaceful students for a democratic society, the so-called weathermen were committed to spreading communist revolution through violent means and were soon late, uh, soon um, identified as a domestic terrorist group by the FBI. Well, the weathermen were uh, added again a dozen years later in 1983, setting off another bomb that tore through the second floor of the Capitol's north wing, according to the U.S. Senate history site. Moments earlier, a group calling itself the Armed Resistance Unit called in a warning to the Senate switchboard, but lives were spared only because debate had uh, ceased earlier than expected. Well, that time there was a million dollars in damage. The reason uh, perpetrators gave was U.S. military involvement in Lebanon and Grenada. In 1988, the FBI arrested and charged seven men and women for execution of the blast. They were Marilyn Jean Buck, Linda Evans, Susan Rosenberg, Timothy Blunk, Alan Berkman, Laura Whitehorn, and Elizabeth Ann Duke. All were either members of the Weather Underground or had some link to it. Some were also closely associated with the May 19th communist organization. Some of them pled deals, uh, were eventually charged for other crimes. Some others uh, were part, uh, paroled, rather, and one of them, Duke, is still on the lam with a heavy FBI reward out for her head. Well, two of them were uh, serving long sentences in 2001, Evans, a 38-year sentence, and Rosenberg, a 58-year term, not for capital bombings, but for a New Jersey weapons case. Then in his last day of office with only two hours left, President Bill Clinton pardoned them. 
Now, Rosenberg is now the vice chair of the board of Thousand Currents, the deep-pocketed funder of hard-left causes, which until last July was the fiscal sponsor of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, the main BLM organization. In 1989 interview, she didn't uh, she did from prison rather. Rosenberg said one of the things that clears uh, that's clear is that government is trying to get us to reassess, to apologize, to get us to say we won't ever do anything again. And for all of us, certainly for myself, I'm not going to say that to the greatest terrorist state in the world, end quote. Well, clemency has its place in dire cases and where there has been repentance, violence on all sides needs to be condemned, however, and uh, vigorously prosecuted. So there have been other instances in which members of Congress have been threatened by those with whom there is a strong disagreement. Well, three news agencies paid an activist who identifies as Antifa and was charged for allegedly committing crimes during the January 6th breach of the U.S. Capitol for footage he captured rather during the mayhem. CNN and NBC and the Australian Broadcasting Company, ABC, paid John Earl Sullivan thousands of dollars to use video clips he shot inside the building. CNN paid 35000 NBC 35000 ABC, again, Australian Broadcasting Company, 2300 according to invoices that were filed with the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Now, Sullivan, 26, was arrested and charged last month for allegedly committing multiple crimes on the 6th, including violent entry, civil dis, uh, disorder, and disorderly conduct. CNN, NBC, they haven't returned requests for clarification. Video footage show of which, uh, some of which rather, was filmed by Sullivan show the Utah man illegally entering the Capitol building and urging others to go inside and burn the structure down. CNN also uh, hosted Sullivan for an on-air interview later in the day, along with Jade Sacker, a freelancer who has uh, had uh, work published by various outlets. Now, Sullivan told the Epic Times, that, which is a conservative publication, that he's apolitical, but has told other news outlets that he is Antifa or anti-fascist. Antifa is the far left, um, uh, I guess it's anarcho-communist network that's, a, that's engaged in violence across the country in recent years. Sullivan has also been linked to Black Lives Matter movement, though he's been disavowed by the leader of that movement. He was released conditionally shortly after being charged, remains free despite violating conditions of his release. A federal judge on Tuesday declined to block him from using Twitter and Facebook, but said he has to stop working for um, Insurgents USA, an organization he founded uh, to help advocate for the empowerment and uplifting of black and indigenous voices. Ah, what a time we live in. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I need to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll talk with Jonathan Butcher. How do you get kids back in the classroom, and what role are teachers' unions playing in keeping them out? That's coming up. We'll also speak with Lois Anderson on the upcoming Oregon Right to Life conference that's been tweaked, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, there's been a lot of talk about whether kids should be in school or shouldn't be in school. The CDC says, hey, it's in their best interest to do so. Well, my next guest points out that when teachers' unions are preventing teachers and uh, lawmakers from making decisions in the best interest of the kids, while some flexibility is important for them to be able to make good decisions – 
there's something wrong. He writes that when it comes to reopening classrooms, we have to give teachers, parents, lawmakers options. I think we'd all agree with that. But some teachers may be ready to return to work, irrespective of the union's position. And there's a growing list of studies that finds that schools are not super spreaders and even that the transmission rates are far lower in schools than in surrounding communities. So if parents are not prepared to send their kids back in person, then uh, that should be their choice. If teachers have health issues to put them at risk, that should be their choice. But if unions are telling entire chapters not to go in back to cl- the uh, classroom in person, and special interest groups are acting as though lawmakers have no choice but to comply with the union's wishes. But lawmakers have options, and he joins us to talk a bit about that. I'm referring to Jonathan Butcher. He is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. And uh, what we can do about all of this is a question I think lots of parents and teachers are asking themselves. Jonathan Butcher, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. So this is such a frustrating scenario that I think a lot of parents, administrators, lawmakers are wringing their hands. How widespread is this union influence that's saying, no, we're not prepared to go or you shouldn't be prepared to go back in the classroom? How many strings are the unions pulling? And is this a nationwide phenomenon? Well, it's happening, especially in some of the largest metro areas, right? Places like L.A., Chicago. It's unfolding in Philadelphia right now. What happened in Chicago was that the unions told their members not to go back for weeks, even after the district and city called teachers back to in-person. And then the city wound up settling uh, eventually with the union on their terms. So uh, most students who will go back won't be going back until March, but there's no plan for high school kids to get back at all still. And the same thing is now replaying itself in Philadelphia. We know what the CDC has said most recently about uh, it's in the best interest of and the right thing to do is to return to the classroom. What's the primary beef of the unions? And does that reflect rank and file teachers um, who have not been in the classroom since what, last March? Well, it's nothing short of bizarre what's coming out of the CDC right now because their most recent report laid out these color-coded guidelines for what the community transmission and infection rates should be uh, in order for schools to decide to open in person. But there are very few places in the country that have numbers low enough that, according to these new CDC numbers, that would uh, have schools uh, return to in-person learning. So they set this bar at a place that's very, very difficult to meet. And that's why it matters so much that we do have some research from Brown University and uh, other studies showing that schools have lower transmission rates and infection rates than the community at large. So if you're basing your decision about reopening in person on what's going on in the community, it's going to be much, much harder than what's actually going on in the school. Mm. I think one of the big questions that parents have, and again, I think some teachers who are prepared to return to the classroom as well, uh, is what can be done about it? Who can make decisions that give parents the freedom to move forward uh, that they apparently don't have now? And you make some recommendations. What can lawmakers do about this? And that's a great question. So right now, you know, many state legislatures are back in session. Yes. And so I think that policymakers should be looking at a couple of things. Uh, First is, if a, low, if a union tells its members not to return in person, right, contrary to what the district or city leaders have called the teachers to do, then lawmakers should automatically, they should automatically provide open enrollment. They should say, okay, students can attend any public school um, in the state. And uh, there are states like Arizona and Florida that already have provisions like this 
uh, in law, but something like that should automatically kick in when a union uh, defies what a district uh, or city has called them to do. Secondly, there are uh, charter school laws in nearly, nearly every state in the U.S., but many of these laws have caps or limits on them as to how many schools can be opened, how many students can attend them. Those caps, again, immediately should be lifted if the unions say that their members uh, will, will not be returning in person. And then finally, I think that um, oftentimes uh, teacher pay is already suspended when uh, striking union members um, uh, are, are, do not go to work. And so what we should do now is if they return, if they refuse to return in person, uh, those monies, those salaries should go back to the state coffers. And then that savings could be uh, returned to students and families by way of uh, private school scholarships so that students can get back uh, to a school of their choice. Are we seeing this uh, being done in any part of the country where there's resistance from the unions? Well, I think that, uh, you know, like we said, the, the large metro areas are the ones where the, the resistance has been the toughest. I think some of these proposals that I just laid out here would apply to some specific states. So Pennsylvania has a waiting list for their, uh, they have a statewide private school scholarship program. And so they have a, a waiting list there that uh, that could be aided if um, uh, these resources were used to help students there. Florida similar thing, although uh, the, the union uh, situation there is, is different than in some of these other areas that we've listed. West Virginia, unions were effective in limiting the charter school law there, which is the most recent law that was passed, re- most recent charter school law that's been passed in the U.S. So this is something where uh, teachers have gone on strike there in the past several years running. Um, this is something that could help uh, students in West Virginia as well. What has been, and I, I realize I'm generalizing, perhaps overgeneralizing. What has been the primary object, objection to returning to the classroom? Is it simply where we have health concerns, uh, broad general health concerns, or are there other motivations behind preventing teachers who may want to go to the classroom from returning to the classroom? All we know so far is that there is no safety plan and no amount of money that has satisfied unions so far. Right, The federal government has already awarded $60-plus billion last year. They're talking about uh, another 130, perhaps, billion for K-12 schools. Um, they have, uh, in Philadelphia, for example, they've uh, put $4 million towards air purifiers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the recommendations in the, that the CDC has recommended are all the same, right? Washing hands, wearing masks you know, uh, social distancing, all those kinds of things. But none of these plans have satisfied what the unions want. So it's hard to know exactly what plan would satisfy because so far we there has been nothing. I would say I would say this, though, if we're going to judge these special interest groups by their actions, I would add that last summer when the American Federation for Teachers said that they would back striking members if they chose to, to not go back to work, based on safety concerns, these chapters immediately turn to other political causes, things like forgiving rents and mortgages and uh, Mm. defunding police both in and out of school. So they use this opportunity to pursue their other policy aims. Very interesting. Well, Jonathan Butcher, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your helping us put this into perspective and perhaps understand a bit better what's going on. My pleasure. Thank you. Jonathan Butcher is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation on what can be done if lawmakers have the will to resist this um, apparent desire to stay out of the classroom imposed and encouraged by uh, teachers unions 
in some of the larger cities around the country. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Lois Anderson. She's the Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. Their conference is coming up early next month, but they're going to have to make some changes. <laughs> We're all used to changes. We'll give you all the important details when she joins me next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. It was just a few days ago that I had a conversation with Lois Anderson. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Their conference is coming up in early March. But there are going to be some changes. We're, I think we're all pretty used to changes these days. Uh, I can tell you that Oregon Right to Life has uh, put together an event that you're not going to want to miss. So I invited Lois to come back and talk about it and make sure you have all the important details. So Lois Anderson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jordine. Okay, I can't begin our conversation without asking you how you and your family fared during this uh, winter storm that just ended. I mean, could there be anything else to disrupt life as we sort of know it? Well, we've decided that this is just month 14 of 2020. That's, we're not really into 2021 yet because uh, we did, we lost power and uh, we lost it for four days, which we live in a neighborhood. You know, I grew up in the country and sometimes we would lose power for extended periods of time, but never when, you know, you live in town. So it was rather unexpected, but we survived and, and our power was restored last night. So we were very thankful. It's a, it's a good exercise in being grateful for the things that we have. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it also reminds us that we're not in control of the details that swirl around us. And that would also include the uh, Oregon Right to Life conference that's scheduled, what, a couple of weeks from now. There have been some changes needed. Tell us a little bit about how you're replacing your traditional format with a new format for the conference coming up on March the 4th uh, in yes, Bend, well, I should say, and March you. the 6th in uh, Tualatin. Yes. Yes. So um, as we, as you mentioned, we spoke not too long ago and, and at that time we were full speed ahead to have a, a limited audience, you know, socially distanced conference with our, with our speakers and workshops and, we had made adjustments, but there were a few more things that our wonderful hosts at Rolling Hills um, Community Church were were having to impose, and it just it just wasn't going to work in the way that we wanted it to work. So um, we went through a couple of different options, and what we landed on, I think, is very exciting. So mm-hmm. I, I hope that that people um, will also be excited. So one of our speakers that we had scheduled to come out, Josh Brom from Equal Rights Institute, um, we had talked to him and planned before a long time ago, before all the pandemic, of actually doing a sidewalk advocacy masterclass the evening before the conference in Portland. And we had had to cancel that. Um, But I called him up and said, hey, what about if we flip everything on his head and um, you bring your colleague Jacob Nels out, who's who's really the expert on this um, topic, and um, we cancel what you were going to talk about and do a master class. And and we'll add to that, why don't you come to Bend and Tualatin? And he's... they are flexible and adaptable and also very excited about coming to Oregon and helping out. So the bottom line is that we are going to offer um, a masterclass on sidewalk advocacy. And it's for people that have been doing 
Um, and what I mean by sidewalk advocacy, for those that don't know, um, would be standing outside or being a presence outside abortion facilities around our state and um, offering offering help and assistance to the women and the families that are walking in to get abortions. And this is something that people are doing um, are doing in Portland, or doing in Bend, or doing in Eugene. Um, in fact, today's the or February seventeenth is the kickoff for Forty Days for Life. It's mm-hmm. a national organization that does a prayer vigil, um, and so it, it's an activity that many people are doing. Um, but we would like more people to be trained and feel comfortable in doing it because it is one of the most effective ways um, besides making abortion uh, unavailable and illegal um, to save lives and to um, end abortion by reduce it, by just reducing it one decision at a time. Yeah. So um, that is sidewalk advocacy. And there are ways to do it in a very effective and loving way. And there are ways to do it in a very damaging way. And we would love for um, 200 people, 100 in Bend and 100 in Tualatin to be able to get this excellent training. Um, so that that's what we pivoted to. And we have um, the Saturday training on the 6th is still at Rolling Hills. And the Thursday training in Bend is actually at the Deschutes um, Fairgrounds, which they've been wonderful in giving us um, access to their facility. You know, what seems like a pivot or like a dramatic change that's based on events that are out of our control, really, I think is providential that God is presenting this opportunity for folks to learn in this specific way. And I would say to equip them for work that is going to be done in the days ahead specifically. I love what both uh, Josh and Jacob have to say about what they do and their motivation. And I would encourage listeners to go to the website for more information on that. Um, But Josh says that he likes helping uh, pro-life people to be more persuasive, persuasive, ditching faulty rhetoric and tactics and embracing arguments that hold up under philosophical scrutiny to bring relational apologetics to the pro-life movement. I love the uh, the idea that he is helping to equip people to comfortably share the truth about life in a way that's comely and persuasive. And uh, I think most of us want to be able to approach this issue in a way that's effective and while the temperature is down and we're, you know, we're able to do that well. Jacob um, says that he's working to make abortion unthinkable and to make Jesus thinkable. Uh, his primary role at Equal Rights Institute is training people to sidewalk counsel and mentoring to grow in compassion and understand for the pro-choice people uh, or, or understand them um, as they uh, disagree. So this is going to be a really significant opportunity for people together to advocate for sidewalk advocates. Yes, and it will be. And thank you. They're just both really wonderful um, people who work have worked very hard at being the best at at what they're doing and i do want to note that there will be opportunities during this master class to practice um so there will be an uh, a real opportunity to take what they're teaching and practice with you with each other and do some role playing so i think that's a a great addition um to sort of our normal uh workshop uh format that will really allow um people to practice what they've learned, and hopefully really retain it and remember it. Now, for those, and you do have a limited capacity, both in uh, Redmond and in Tualatin, for those who are coming, how do they do that? 
So um, they, the best, the quickest way to do it is to go on the website and register. We're just asking a few questions um, because we'd like to know whether uh, what your experience level is, if you're brand new and you're trying to learn it, or if you have some experience. And once you do that, then we'll send you a link where you can um, you can sign up and pay. If you don't want to do it online, you can call the office, um, and that number is 503-463-8563, and we can, we can register you here. And again, we're, it's all going to have to be first come, first serve. We would love to be able to have as many people as want to come, but, but with the restrictions that we're under, um, we do just have 100 slots um, in each location each of the two locations. And again, we're talking about Thursday, March the 4th in Redmond and on Saturday, March the 6th in Tualatin at Rolling Hills um, Community Church. This is really a significant opportunity. It's different than what you had planned and anticipated, (laughs) but it certainly is a worthy alternative and I think will have a significant impact on the lives of those who attend, but certainly on those who will be ministered to um, by these uh, sidewalk advocates who are better equipped um, to minister in, in that situation. Now, once again, you can uh, register online at, or at least uh, begin the process online um, at their at the website, but you can also call the office if you'd like to register and do it, um, do it that way. Can you give that information once more for our listeners? Sure. The website is just ortl.org. And actually you can type in slash conference and it'll take you straight to the page. But if, if you just Google Oregon Right to Life, it, it will bring it up. So ortl.org slash conference. And then our phone number is 503-463-8563. Well, I just want to come oh, in. and I almost forgot something. Sorry, Georgine. No, We're go not going to be able to provide lunch. So we are reducing the price and, and you're going to need to bring a brown bag. <laughs> Okay, good good point. I think we're all kind of used to those kind of adjustments these days, so I appreciate your mentioning <laughs> yeah. that. Um, uh, once again, I just want to encourage our listeners to take full advantage of this opportunity to be a part of this reconfigured conference that I think is providential. And I want to thank you and your staff for being agile. I mean, you could have just said, well, we can't do it, we're not doing anything, but you chose rather to provide an opportunity that presented itself and it will be a blessing and a benefit uh, to Oregonians all across the uh, all across the state. So thanks, Lois. Thank you, Georgine. And we do have a wonderful team here of very hardworking folks. And yes. um, that's made possible by our wonderful supporters. You know, we just celebrated 50 years and it really is extraordinary to see um, what has been built here in Oregon. And we just hope to continue to do the work and continue to prepare people across the state to help end this injustice once and for all. Absolutely. Lois Anderson, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. Once again, Lois is Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, our final segment. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, you've probably heard by now, but Rush Limbaugh, the monumentally influential media icon who transformed talk radio and politics and is decades behind the microphone, he helped shape the modern-day Republican Party. 
He died today at the age of 70 after a battle with lung cancer, according to his family. His wife, uh, Catherine, made the announcement on his radio show. Well, the radio icon learned he had stage four lung cancer in January of last year. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Trump at the State of the Union address uh, days later. First Lady Melania Trump then presented America's highest civilian honor to Limbaugh in an emotional moment on the heels of his devastating cancer diagnosis. President Trump said during the address at the time, Rush Limbaugh, thank you for your decades of tireless devotion to our country. Well, Limbaugh is considered one of the most influential media figures in American history, and he's played a consequential role in conservative politics since the Rush Limbaugh show back began rather back in 1988. Behind his golden EIB mic, which is excellence in broadcasting microphone, uh, Limbaugh spent over three decades as arguably both the most beloved and polarizing person in American media. Well, the program they began 33 years ago on national syndication with only 56 radio stations grew to be the most listened to radio show in the United States, airing on more than 600 stations, according to the show's website. Up to 27 million people tuned in on a weekly basis. Limbaugh has lovingly referred to his passionate fan base as ditto heads, as they would often say ditto when agreeing with the uh, radio host. Well, in his final broadcast of 2020, he thanked his listeners and supporters, revealing at the time that he had outlived his prognosis. Uh, I wasn't expected to be alive today, he said at the time. I wasn't expected to make it to October and then to November and then to December. And yet here I am. And today got some problems, but I'm feeling pretty good. Well, Limbaugh helped boost Trump's influence prior to the 2016 election simply by talk, uh, taking him rather seriously as a candidate when others established uh, uh, I should say other established conservatives didn't want the former reality television star anywhere near the Republican Party. Many of uh, Limbaugh's listeners eventually became Trump supporters and the radio legend continued to defend the former president throughout his presidency, despite occasional disagreements. Well, today he went on to be with the Lord. He also made clear on his radio program that he was a follower of Jesus and had faith in Christ. It's very interesting to see what's being said now about a person who is deceased, whose influence in this life has come largely to an end, although maybe not altogether in Rush Limbaugh's place. When everything else sort of dissipates, certainly his influence and legacy remain, but his influence moving forward dissipates in what people uh, have to say in light of eternity. Um, but that's where he stands today. He stands at the edge of eternity uh, and will give an account for his life. We understand that he, um, based on uh, reports that he was and is a, a believer in Jesus, had given his life to him. So you kind of know what happens from here. Uh, Limbaugh was born in Cape Girard. I think it's Gerardo, Missouri, in January of 1951. He started his radio career in 67 as a helper uh, he said he was totally consumed when he talked to the New York Times back in the uh, 90s, uh, noting that his idol at the time was a Chicago radio host, Larry Lujak. In 71, Limbaugh was a morning radio host in Pittsburgh, where he was oddly told to cover a certain amount of farm news. The last thing that the audience of my show cares about is farm news, he said, and he began, uh, began I should say, began to be something of a revolutionary, uh, revolutionary at that time. Limbaugh and his program continued the trip down memory lane, saying he was literally interested in how uh, his career happened, what would happen next, and so on. Uh, he credited National Review founder William Buckley for teaching him how to articulate conservative views, and he held them throughout his singular career. 
he says that he is responsible for my learning to form and frame my beliefs and express them verbally in a concise and understandable way. A lot of people don't remember William F. Buckley, and this newer generation would not have had any um, connection with him, but he was very influential in Limbaugh's life and many other conservatives as well. In 87, the Federal Communications Commission repealed the Fairness Doctrine, which is a uh, policy that had been in place since 1949 and mandated that both sides of controversial political issues receive equal time. The decision um, paved the way for Limbaugh to broadcast his conservative views without fear of being punished by the government. And the rest, of course, is history. Limbaugh was uh, eventually enshrined in the Radio Hall of Fame and the National Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame. He was a five-time winner of the National Association of uh, Broadcasters Marconi Award for Excellence in Syndicated and Network Broadcasting, a number one New York Times bestselling author. He was named one of Barbara Walters' 10 Most Fascinating People in 2008 and one of Time's 100 Most Influential People in the World in 2009. Rush Limbaugh has gone on to his reward, and all of us will do the same. Whether you agreed with his political rhetoric, you enjoyed his program, or hated him, as many I'm seeing on social media are expressing, all of that is uh, of little consequence as he stands before his maker. And what he decided to do at some point in his life with the Son of God, Jesus, will make all the difference in terms of his future. So uh, pray for um, Rush Limbaugh's family, and... uh, Hope, uh, hope for the best. Meanwhile, Carmen Dominic, whose last name I could never get right, Carmen, known to, to world fans, worldwide fans as Carmen, has passed away. He was 65 and uh, battling uh, complications of a procedure. Well, the GMA Gospel Music Hall of Famer, uh, Carmen, passed away Tuesday night uh, at a Las Vegas, Nevada hospital. He was fighting a series of complications resulting from surgery to repair a hiatal hernia. He was born in 1956, January 19th, to be precise, his birthday coming up, in Trenton, New Jersey. He started his musical career playing uh, playing drums in his mother's band at the age of 15. He holds the world record for having the largest audience to see a single Christian artist. He set the record for the largest concert in Texas Stadium with more than 71,000 and led more than 80,000 fans in worship in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Well, among his many awards, he received the House of Hope of Humanitarian Award for his positive influence in the lives of American youth in 2006. Other noted recipients were Ronald and Nancy Reagan and Billy Graham, to put that into perspective. The Gospel Music Association honored Carmen with induction in the GMA Gospel Music Hall of Fame in 2018. Billboard named him Contemporary Christian Artist of the Year in 92, 95. And in 93, his album, Addicted to Jesus, earned a distinction of Contemporary Christian Album of the Year. Carmen was Grammy-nominated multiple times as the best pop contemporary gospel artist. His recording, A Long Time Ago in a Land Called Bethlehem, Bethlehem was nominated for Album of the Year by the Recording Academy in 1986. It really goes on from there. Matt Phelps, his uh, manager, states, when Carmen resumed touring again a few years ago, he was concerned that no one would care that he was back. He was wrong. Every night fans packed out venues and his ministry was as powerful as it ever was. This world has lost a light in the darkness, but today Carmen saw firsthand the fruit of his labors. Carmen was planning to embark on a 60-city tour later this month. Um, But, of course, that tour is of heaven.
I want to thank James Blind for uh, engineering. No, he's been producing today's program, a little engineering too. Clark Hilton for engineering and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.